morning in Genesis chapter 1, one of my favorite verses in, the, in all of the Bible. And it's a favorite because it reveals things to us that I believe we should all attain to. Genesis chapter 1 tells us the story of creation. And in verse 26, after God had made the earth, after God had created everything, filled the earth with everything that's here, his last and greatest work of creation is identified, but even more so than that, his purpose and his plan for why he did what he did the way he did. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the, over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Notice in verse 26, it tells us God's plan was to create man for the sole purpose of having authority and dominion here on the earth. Now this word dominion, the Hebrew word that's translated into the English dominion, is used 25 times in the Old Testament. And most often it's used and interpreted, uh, or translated I should say, as rule or reign. So you can see that the meaning of the word is accurate. Let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness, and let them rule over the earth. God made Adam to be the God of this world. God made man, and of course, I'm, when I say man, I'm talking about mankind, male and female created he them, it says. But God created man in his image. I used to say as much as is possible, God made man exactly like himself. But the Bible says with God, all things are possible. So why even put that in there? God made man an exact copy of himself. An exact copy of himself. And it tells us his reason for that is so that man could have dominion. So that man could have dominion. Now I want to read to you from uh, Psalm 8. It tells us, gives us a little bit of insight into uh, God's creative plan regarding man. I'll start in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Verse 2, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength. Notice your strength in your mouth. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. Verse 3, when I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Now this word translated angels is not the word that's translated angels everywhere else in scripture. This word translated angels in this verse must have been too much for the translators to handle. Because it literally means Elohim. So where it says thou hast made man a little lower than the angels. The original Hebrew says you made man a little lower than yourself. Here's being made in God's image and after his likeness. 
Thou hast made him a little lower than Elohim, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Now in Hebrews chapter 2 it tells us that the angels are speaking here. This is revelation that was given to the psalmist about the angels' position and what the angels did when God said, let us make man in our own image and let him have dominion. This is one of the angels. The angels are standing around when God said, let us make man, let him have authority over everything we've created. The angels are saying, what's man? Never been a man created before. Something new to them. What is man that you are mindful of him? I'll interpret this with a little different uh, wording to try to make the point. He's saying, what is man that you've made him better than anything else you've made? What is man that you've made him better and higher than us? Again, Hebrews chapter 2 says it's the angels that are saying this. The Bible also tells us that the angels themselves desire to look over into our salvation. Our position with God being created in his image and after his likeness with the authority that he's delivered unto us here on the earth is better than anything the angels could attain to, and they wish they could have part of what we've got, according to the Scripture. So God made man in his image. He gave man authority and dominion. We know the story how that man fell. He yielded to the devil's deception, and they fell through disobedience to the one command that God gave them. Well, as he, as he fell, we know that his spirit nature was changed. First of all, he was made in the image and likeness of God, joined and connected with God. But when he, sat, when he sinned, he fell. Now, what does the fall mean? He fell specifically, meaning his nature changed from being like God to being sinful. Spiritual death began to rule and reign. That was the consequence that God said would take place. He said you could eat of every fruit of the tree in the garden except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It blesses me to know that God never intended for man to know good and evil. He already knew good. He was in God's image, made in God's image. He was good, and he was only good. God never wanted you to have to weigh out good versus evil. And folks, I would submit to you that that's exactly the problem, the biggest part of what we have to deal with with the devil is condemnation about not doing good. The devil's always trying to throw up in our face how unworthy we are or how unrighteous we're acting or whatever the case might be, however you want to verbalize it. All that's attached to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so man fell. So what happened to the authority? When man fell, what happened to the authority? There are two schools of thought on this. Well, that may not be a good way to say it. Most Christians don't think. But among those that do, there are two schools of thought concerning the authority that God gave man. One is that it reverted back to God. If that's true, then God's word changed. 
Is that possible? God can't lie. God can't take back what he's given to man. He gave man authority and dominion on the earth. So it could not revert back to him. But you've got sovereignty of God crowd among the modern day church that have the idea that everything's under God's control. God reclaimed the authority that he gave to man. But why then would there be scriptures in the Bible that tell us to choose life instead of death? Behold, I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, choose life. Why would God tell man to make choices if he's the one with authority? If man's authority reverted back to God at the fall, then what does anything that man says, wants, or, or desires have to do with anything? What, per, what point and for what purpose does man still have a will? Now, I know it's easy for some people just to fall back on this idea that God's under, got everything under control, that God's pulling the strings, God's doing everything. Well, folks, if that's true, there's a lot of things that God's not doing well. The idea that's prevalent in certain parts of the church is that whatever God wants, whatever is God's will, will take place. Well, the Bible says God wills for everybody to be saved. But the Bible tells us very specifically that a lot of people aren't going to be saved. The Bible talks about the road to heaven being a narrow path. But there's an expressway to hell. Well, if God wants everybody to be saved, then how is it that some people are not going to be saved? See, the sovereignty of God idea and doctrine that God's in control of everything just doesn't fit. The Bible can't be true if that doctrine is correct. There are pages we're going to have to tear out. There are things that we're going to have to do away with. It just doesn't fit. Because we've got scriptures like Numbers chapter 14, verse 28, where God said when Israel rejected God's intent and purpose to go into the promised land, the congregation of, of Israel, the millions of people, however many millions it was, decided that they wouldn't go in because Israel was too weak to do it, to take possession of the land God said was theirs. So God said to Moses, tell them, as truly as I live, I will deal with you according as you have spoken in my ears. If God's in control of everything, then what difference does it make what we say? If God's just doling out prizes, making things good for some people and bad for other people, then what purpose would there be in man having a will about anything? So dominion on the earth can't be in the hands of God entirely. And the other school of thought that some hold to is that Satan is the God of this world. Satan's in control. And there are some scriptures that, uh, that can be used to back up that thought. For example, when Jesus is being tempted of the devil after his 40 days of fasting, one of the temptations of the devil in Luke chapter 4, I think it's verse 6, it says that Satan showed Jesus the, all the kingdoms of the earth in a moment of time and the glory of them. And Satan said, I'll give you the glory of all these things if you'll just bow down and worship me. And then he makes this statement. He said, for that has been delivered unto me. 
Well, God sure didn't give it to him. So that much of authority on the earth or Satan's place here on the earth was delivered to him by Satan at the fall or by Adam at the fall in the Garden of Eden. But let's talk about that for a minute. If Satan is the one that's got authority, if he has man's original authority so that he rules over governments and kingdoms and he decides about kings and the work of kings and so forth, then how is it that there were ever any godly kings in Israel? David was a man after God's own heart. He was a good king. He made mistakes. But he was a good king. And there are a few others, not many, but a few others in the line of the kings of Israel that were good men and that honored God. How is that possible if Satan is ruling the kingdoms of the earth independent of man and his choice? How is that possible? It wouldn't be. There would never come a time where Satan would say, well, we've had enough evil kings for a while. Let's put a good one in there. That's not the way he works, is it? So how is it possible if Satan is the God of this world, meaning he has authority over all of the earth, irrespective of mankind, then how did that happen? Well, if we look at how to see how Satan does influence the earth, the Bible's real clear and tells us that there's only one way for Satan to operate here in this earth, and that is through deception. He's got to make people think wrong so that they speak wrong and act wrong, meaning contrary to the righteousness of God. It's only through deception that he's able to operate and accumulate or act uh, carry out his will to whatever degree he is able to carry out his will on the earth it's only through deception in other words he's got to get somebody to use their authority wrong or in a wrongful manner compared to what God would have us do so where is the authority on the earth man never lost it he never lost it authority is still ours and that's why there are scriptures telling us to choose life and that our words will come to pass. God will deal with us according as we have spoken it, because our authority still exists. Our, the authority and dominion over the earth, the ability to rule and reign here over the earth still belongs to mankind. Now, if you were the devil and you wanted man to be in the dark about his authority, our authority, to perform the will of God instead of the will of the evil one. How would you operate? Sound, it seems to me that if you push half of the church world to the place where they think God's in control and God's doing bad stuff, then you can do some pretty serious damage to our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And on the other hand, if you convince another group of people that Satan's the one that's doing everything and bringing about everything according to his will, then you can create a wrong impression or a wrong understanding 
among the children of God of how, the, how powerful the devil is. But man never lost his authority. He never lost his authority. He couldn't lose his authority because God's word can't be broken. If God said, let us make man in our own image and and, um, after our own likeness and let them have dominion. And then through anything, the fall or anything else man lose that dominion, then that would mean something is greater than God's power who gave that dominion to mankind. It would be a broken promise or a broken statement. It's really not even a promise. It's just telling us what, what happened and how things operate, which would make God's word a lie, which would mean the power of God cannot back up any and all of his words. Now I want you to turn with me over to John chapter 10. There are some things about this subject on authority, subject of authority, that I've seen in the last few years in a much different way than ever before. And there's some things that, um, well, have been kind of difficult for me to accept because of some of the teaching that I've had in the past. Folks, even Brother Hagin used to teach that man lost his authority at the fall. And just for me, I, I don't expect this to be the same for you or anybody else maybe, but just for me, the idea that Brother Hagin could have been wrong on something, it's kind of hard for me to accept. Now, he, didn't, he never took that position. He knew he was wrong about some things because all of us are. Nobody's got the whole story or the whole answer for everything. And we're all still learning and all still growing and should never stop. But it was hard for me to accept some things that I began to see in the Word. Look at John chapter 10. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter, the porter is the gatekeeper. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he puts forth his own sheep, He goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they were which he spake unto them. Now I want to cover a little bit of this, talk a little bit about this, because this is a very, very important topic. John's the only one that tells us about this. As we've said before numerous times, the Gospel of John was written some 60 years after Jesus was raised from the dead. It was the last of the uh, letters to the church that were ever written. In other words, what I'm trying to get to is John knew about the other Gospels. He was very familiar with what Mark 
and Matthew and Luke wrote, he was familiar with the letters of Paul. He was familiar with the things that Peter wrote. And it's almost like since John was the last surviving member of the 12, and because he was so close to Jesus as part of his inner circle, that it's almost like the Holy Ghost uses John at the end of his life to tie things together and give us information, specific information that the other writers don't give us. And there's some situation that John and only John himself at the point of time of this writing would be alive to know or remember. And he seems to fill in the, the gaps in some things. He seems to give us, or he does give us a lot of details about the last supper and the, and the things that Jesus said at the last supper that the other writers don't tell us. And he gives us instances like this in John chapter 10 of times and places that Jesus said very important things that the others don't record. So the, the gospel of John, as well as his letters, seem to me, and I, I hope I'm not taking liberty with the way that I say this, but seem to me to be the Holy Ghost tying up loose ends as if God could have any loose ends. So when Jesus starts talking about this entering into the sheepfold, I see two things here. One, I see the doctrine and the understanding that he's trying to bring us. But secondly, I see his attitude toward the devil. Jesus said that coming in through the door was the only legal entry into the sheepfold. Now, folks, the sheepfold's the earth. Remember, Jesus said, except a man be born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the things of God, or the kingdom of God. When Jesus says that entering in by the door is the only legal way into the earth, the door he's talking about is natural birth. He said anybody that enters in any other way is a thief and a robber. Well, we know he's talking about the devil. He goes on in verse 10 to say, I'm come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly, but the thief comes not but for to kill, steal, and destroy. He's contrasting himself and the works of the devil. He says the devil's only purpose is to kill, steal, and destroy. That's it. That's all he's got. That's all he can do. That's all he will do. But Jesus is saying, I came in legally. He didn't. Think about the Garden of Eden and how Satan was able to get in and influence Adam and Eve to cause them to fall or disobey God. He had to take on a form or a body because he didn't have one. Didn't have one, doesn't have one. So he took upon himself the body of a serpent. He had to borrow something that God created to communicate with Adam and Eve. It's surprising, on one hand, I, on the other hand, you, you see and know how the devil operates, so there's not really any big surprise. But here's Adam and Eve, made in the image and likeness of God, an exact copy of God himself. Did they not know how they were made? Did they not know that they were the finest of God's creation? God's already delivered unto them authority and dominion on the earth. He's already told them to rule and reign and subdue the earth, bring it under your control, 
and keep it under your control. And here shows up a serpent. Now, I'm sure the serpent looked differently than what we're used to snakes looking like now. But here's a serpent that shows up and says, hey, if you'll just eat that tree, eat of that tree, the fruit of that tree that God told you not to, you'll be like God. Why did Adam and Eve not look at each other and say, are you kidding? We are like God. And what would you know about it? But unfortunately, that's not the way it went. So when Jesus talks about it, and you remember also in, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, it talks about how that Jesus laid aside his heavenly power and glory. He laid aside the power and glory that he had with God the Father as a, a part of the Trinity, the glory of the Almighty One. It says he laid that aside and humbled himself and came to the earth as a man. So when Jesus is talking about entering in legally, he knows exactly what he means. He knows exactly how this is supposed to work. See, the only ones that have authority on earth are the ones in physical bodies. That's why when the Bible says Satan is the God of this world, it can't mean he has man's lost dominion. It can't be that. Because just as we saw the angels, the angels looked upon the creation and said, what is man? And why have you elevated him to such a position even above us? The angels who excel in strength, as the scripture says. You made them more like yourself even that we are. And as we said before, the Bible tells us about how the angels desire to look into our salvation. Well, why can't they have it? Because they're not flesh and blood. See, Satan, even though the Bible calls him the God of this world, Satan doesn't have a physical body, so he has no form of authority here whatsoever. Adam's authority could not have been given or transferred over to Satan. Because the only ones that have authority on the earth, the only ones that were ever given authority on the earth, were the ones that have flesh and blood bodies. Well, then why does the Bible call Satan the God of this world? Well, when we read that phrase, the God of this world, we generally think of it being Satan has authority over everything. But the word that's translated world just means a period of time. Satan is the God of this world, meaning he has a legal right to influence man to misuse his authority for a certain period of time. But that time's coming to a close. You remember the, the, one of the first times Jesus came in contact with somebody that was demon-possessed? You remember what the evil spirit said? When the evil spirit saw a new Jesus, he said, have you come to torment us before the time? I get a kick out of the devil knowing his time's running out. And that was first and foremost on the evil spirit's mind. Have you come to torment us before the time? Our time's not up yet. Well, their time's up when Jesus says it's up. And their time was up in the bodies of the individuals that they possessed when Jesus cast them out. But the devil knows that this is just a temporary situation. His situation is just a temporary one. And the clock is ticking. I take comfort in that. 
This evil one that tells us he can do anything that he wants to to us knows that he can't. And he knows that his ability to try to influence us to misuse our authority according to his plan and purpose instead of what God's will is for our lives. He knows that time's running out. So when Jesus talks about entering into the sheepfold or coming into the earth, he's saying, I did this in a legal way. But the devil didn't. The devil certainly didn't. Now the reason he calls himself the door a little bit further down Verse 7, then said Jesus unto them again, verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. Now he's talking about a different door. He's talking about the door of the, the, to the earth, the door into the sheepfold. Was physical birth, natural birth. He had to be born of a virgin so he could bypass being born into spiritual death. Like we were. But then when he talks about being the door... In verse 7, he's talking about himself being the way and making a way unto God the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. So he's talking about the way to God being salvation that he would bring through the shedding of his blood. If any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Here's verse 10 that we referred to. The thief comes not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. Jesus is saying, I have authority here on the earth because I'm born of a woman. I have authority on the earth to bring forth salvation by the shedding of my blood and the sacrifice of my life. I can do that because I entered in legally. But Satan didn't. Turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Let me start reading. uh, Let's start reading in verse 25. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. He's talking about being saved and taking advantage of the sacrifice that he will make with his own life. Verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so has he given the Son to have life in himself. He's saying that he has the same life of God that God has in heaven, which has to be the same thing that Adam and Eve had before the fall. Jesus is made in the image and likeness of God just like Adam was. In fact, the Bible talks about the first Adam versus the second Adam. The first Adam, which was in the Garden of Eden, took action that covered everyone else. As the federal head of mankind, his disobedience and disobeying God meant that you fell just as he did. But the second Adam comes along. And Paul writes and tells us about the second Adam where all of mankind is affected by his sacrifice and his actions. And the second Adam being much greater in every respect than the consequences of the first Adam. So it says, 
For as the Father has life in himself, so has he given the Son to have life in himself. Now notice verse 27. And has given him authority to execute judgment also. And has given him authority to execute judgment also. Now what does he judge? Well, Jesus said, I didn't come to judge any man. Well, what did he judge then? The Bible says that he condemned sin in the flesh. He exercised judgment over sin and the spiritual death that accompanied Adam's sin. He executed judgment on that, not on anybody, but upon that. Now, let's read the rest of the verse. Notice why he has authority to execute that kind of judgment. Because he's the son of man. Not the son of God. Because he's the son of man. This literally means because he has a flesh and blood body. See, folks, the only ones with authority here on the earth, the only ones that were ever created to have authority here on the earth, are the ones that were born of flesh and blood. That's why when Jesus was raised from the dead, he appears to his disciples according to to Matthew chapter 28. He appears unto his disciples and says, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. That word power is literally authority. He's saying, I have, a, I have gained and taken possession of all authority in heaven and in earth. Then what's the next thing he did? He sent the church, the, the apostles. He sent the apostles into the world to execute judgment here on the earth. Or to use their authority here on the earth. Why doesn't Jesus exercise his authority on the earth? Because he doesn't have a human form anymore. That's why when the Bible talks about the the church being the body of Christ, we very rarely understand or or give any thought to understand what that means. The reason that Jesus executes his will and performs the will of God through the church is because we're the ones that are still on the earth with flesh and blood bodies. He doesn't have that. He can execute authority in heaven that's part of what he got all power all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth he's literally saying to the disciples you use what I left for you on the earth I'll take care of things in heaven folks we lose our rights and privileges when we our spirits leave our bodies when people die and their spirits go to their place of rest or torment, whichever way they go. They lose their opportunity to operate here on the earth. You can't do anything here on the earth without your physical body. That would include even Jesus. So he delivered his authority on the earth to the church. He said, you take care of things down here. You take care of things down here. Let me show you. Psalm 115, verse 16. It says, The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth has he given to the children of men. The earth has he given to the children of men. The earth has he given to the children of men. That means whatever man exercises his authority toward here on the earth determines what will happen and what will be. Look with me over to Luke chapter 10. Verse 
starting in verse 1, it says, After these things the Lord appointed other seventy also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whether he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into the harvest. Go your ways, behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Carry neither purse nor scrip nor shoes and salute no man by the way. And into whatsoever house you enter, first say, Peace be, this, be to this house. And if the son of peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. And if not, it shall turn to you again. And in the same house remain eating and drinking such things as they give. For, such as the, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. Go not from the house to house. And into whatsoever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things that are set before you. And heal the sick that are therein. And say unto them, the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. But into whatsoever city you enter and they receive you not. Go your ways out into the streets of the same. And say, even the very dust of your city which cleaveth on us. We do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be sure of this, that the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. Now, I want you to notice that he tells the disciples. And these aren't even the 12. These are the 70. Not the closest disciples he has. But he sends the 70 out two by two as advanced teams into whatever, whatsoever city Jesus was planning to go and the advanced teams were not there to tell everybody that Jesus was coming he never said in any of the instruction that he gave to them tell them I'm coming tell them that I'm coming the people of the city tell them that I'm coming and when I get there I'll do great things among them now that's what I would have imagined the disciples work to be but that's not what Jesus said Jesus sent them to do exactly the same thing that he was going to do when he came to the cities He didn't tell them to preach about him. He just simply sent them with the message that the kingdom of God is coming near. Now, I have to assume that the kingdom of God is being referenced there is talking about Jesus himself. But notice there are results of the kingdom of God just being near if the people would believe. He said, if the people receive you, then heal the sick that are therein and say to them, the kingdom of God is coming near. Healing has to be attached to the kingdom of God then. Has to be. Well, where did the kingdom of God change? Why does the modern day church, or at least much of it, say that healing is not part of the kingdom of God or not part of the atoning work of Jesus on the cross? Jesus said it was part of the kingdom of God. In the Lord's prayer that he told them how to pray, he said something about the kingdom of God in that. He said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's telling us that the kingdom of God is where the will of God is done on the earth just like in heaven. And that's exactly how the earth was before the fall. The will of God was accomplished here on the earth in everything that Adam and Eve did. Every action that they took because they were created in the image and likeness of God. They were created as the righteousness, even the very life of God itself. 
which would dictate that everything they did was according to God's will. Now Jesus is telling the 70, tell them that healing is part of the kingdom of God. Tell them that healing, that the kingdom of God is near. And that's the reason why healing is prevalent. Well, we know that healing is a part of the will of God in heaven because there's nothing that can hurt or destroy mankind at all there. We know that sickness and disease was not part of what God had or created or put here on the earth. It was only the result of sin and spiritual death coming upon mankind. So Jesus is simply saying to the 70, whatever city will receive you, heal the sick therein. The only criteria, the only restriction is for the people of the city to believe what they were saying, what the 70 were saying. That's it. Jesus did not send the 70 or the 12 out to preach some big doctrine. He didn't send them out to parse scriptures or do word studies. He just sent them out saying the kingdom of God is near. If you'll receive it, the people, the sick of your city will be healed. That's all they did, folks. Now let's skip over a little bit to about verse 17, where it says that they come back from being sent out. Verse 17 of Luke chapter 10, and the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. We didn't read the whole thing, but if you go back and read the earlier verses up to this point, you'll find that there's not one word said about casting out devils. Not one. But they found out. The 70 came back and said, this name of Jesus stuff even works on the devil. And notice what Jesus responds. First of all, he doesn't say, you guys were not supposed to find that out yet. Which shows their willingness to use the name in every situation. I wonder if that's something we should follow their example in. So they said, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Now, what is Jesus talking about? Is he saying Satan fell when you used my name? Well, when did Satan fall? Well, the Bible tells us about a war that waged in heaven before the creation of the world ever was. At least the world that we know, this world where Satan took a third of the angels and rebelled against God. Jesus tells us what the outcome of that was. He said, I've beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. You ever seen lightning strike? Ever been close to where lightning did strike? That'll make you live right. (laughs) You know how lightning strikes. Suddenly there's a flash and a sound. And everything else stops. But lightning doesn't come as a slow flutter to the ground like a feather. It comes suddenly. Jesus is saying that's what Satan's defeat looked like. But that defeat took place 
before man was ever created. So when Jesus says, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven, he's just simply saying, yeah, the one that everybody's afraid of is so weak and is so defeated that he fell like lightning from heaven to the earth. The Bible says that when we finally see Satan face to face, we're going to be amazed and we're going to say, is this the guy that created all the problems? Really? Him? So Jesus says, I beheld Satan fall as lightning. He's just simply saying that the devil is a defeated foe. Well, if he was defeated then, he's defeated now. If they had authority in the name of Jesus over him then, we have authority over him now. I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Notice those word power two times is in, in the uh, 19th verse. Those are two different Greek words. The first word, power, means authority. It means delegated power. The second word that's translated power means ability. It's where we get our English word dynamite from. It's the word dunamis. So he's saying, I'm giving you authority over all the devil's ability. Now, how is it Jesus is giving them authority? They're not saved. They're just as spiritually dead as anybody and everybody else. Jesus accepts the fact that they will follow him into salvation. But since he hadn't been to the cross, they couldn't yet be saved. So he's saying to spiritually dead men, you have authority over all the devil's power. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. He does not say you will have authority. He does not say after, I'm go- after I go to Jerusalem, am killed, offer my life as a sacrifice, hang on the cross, and then three days later when I'm raised from the dead, then you'll have authority. It's not what he says. Behold, I give unto you authority. The word give is probably a poor choice of the word that's used. Because he's literally saying this is the authority that mankind has. This is the authority that mankind has. It's the authority that was given to mankind in the beginning. It's the authority that Adam and Eve could have used in the Garden of Eden to resist the devil's temptation. But this is the position that God created man to have. Not just that you have because you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. See, spiritually dead men can choose death just as well as choosing life. And that choice will determine their future. God won't make you choose even the things that are best for you. That's one of the frustrations as a parent, and I'm sure all you parents have experienced this. But we come to the places where we tell our children, this is what we want for you. We're not trying to take anything away from you. We want what's best for you. So this is what's best for you. And so often they look at that and say, but I want the other. Mom and dad, you're just trying to throw this church stuff at me to keep me from having fun. It becomes frustrating sometimes, doesn't it? Somebody once said that children cut their teeth on the bones of their parents. 
And it is frustrating when our kids are doing things that we know is not in their best interest because they won't listen. Well, if we feel that way with one or two kids of our own, how do you think God feels? And folks, God's word is true. And the consequences that God's word paints for disobedience to him as well as to parents. Because God's word is true, those things must come to pass. We don't get the opportunity just for the good stuff, the the blessings and the benefits to come to pass. And get to wipe away the consequences of disobedience. They're both God's word. They're both equally true. So he said, behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions. I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power or ability of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notice verse 20. Notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Notice what he's saying, folks. He's saying the key or the foundation of the basis for authority is relationship with God. That's what should occupy our attention. That's what should occupy our praise. That's what we should rejoice about. And thank God, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we have the same relationship and right standing with him than Jesus had when he was here on the earth. Finally, let me finish up with Matthew chapter 8. Let's start reading in verse 5. It said, And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him. A centurion was a a captain of a a regiment of a hundred people, hundred soldiers. So the centurion came unto Jesus beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lies at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou should come under my roof. But speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority. This is the same word that Jesus said, Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Same word. For I am a man under authority and having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goes. And to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said unto them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. He finishes the story, or the the ending of the story is Jesus said, Go your way, and as you have believed, so be it done. And a servant was healed in that selfsame hour. But what I want you to get is this. Jesus said, This is greater faith than I've found under any of the children of Abraham. Now, the guy identifies what it is that Jesus is marveling at. This man simply says, I know how authority works. And Jesus is impressed with that. Well, I wonder if he's still impressed with us understanding how authority works today. Jesus 
specifically makes the point that none of the children of Israel have shown this kind of understanding of authority and therefore this level of faith. Point number one. The level of the measure of your faith is going to be greatly in, uh, dependent on your understanding of authority. But here's the other part of this that I want you to see. Jesus expected people that were privy to the law of Moses, the Old Testament, covenant people, descendants of Abraham. He expected that the, the truth of the word and the things that the Old Testament reveals, even the Old Testament reveals, should have been sufficient for descendants of Abraham to have the same understanding of authority that the centurion had. But nobody did. So what should we learn from these things? What should we take from this? Well, folks, this is confirmation. This is Jesus, Jesus giving us confirmation that the things that we've already spoken to the verses of scripture that say things like, behold, I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose life. That should have an impact on our understanding of authority. When God said to Israel, as you have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto you. That should have an impact on our understanding of authority. And sadly, even the modern day church, with much greater revelation and information from the New Testament, for the most part, has little or no clue at all about the authority that belongs to us. I would suggest that God is still hard put to find many people that understood authority even on the level of the centurion. Now. Not back when Jesus was here. But now. Because you've got the church arguing about whether or not we're worms. And our righteousness is, is as filthy rags. Or the truth of the scripture that says Jesus was made to be sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus seemed to teach a lot about authority. Jesus seemed to operate in such a way with the disciples so that they would understand what authority is and so that they could use effectively the authority that God's given them. But we live in a different day. We live in the day of salvation. We live in the day where God has already identified who we are and what we have. In the way of authority. We can't go to Jesus and ask him to explain the parable one more time. We're left with a simple choice. Now that we're born again. Now that we're part of the family of God. And have been given the word. Which is the power of God. And have been given the name of Jesus. Which is available to each and every one of us. The choice for us is. What are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with it? Well, I would suggest that the first thing we ought to do with it is stop letting the devil run roughshod over our lives. 
that would mean that we're not going to be able to use physical evidence as the proof for everything we exercise our authority for. Brother Hagin told a story. Of all the stories that he told, this one has had a, a, a tremendous impact on me over the years. He said that he was in a small church holding a um, multi-week revival. And there was a fellow that came up. They were teaching on healing. He had been teaching on healing for several days, maybe even a week, more than a week. And he said there was this guy that came up. And uh, there was some kind of condition. I don't remember what the doctor diagnosed it as. But there was something to where he couldn't bend over. His motions was very limited and he just didn't have much mobility at all. So he said it took this guy forever to, to shuffle up from where he was sitting up to the front where Brother Hagen was going to lay hands on him. And at that point in time, Brother Hagen was ministering in such a way that when he laid his hands on somebody, the anointing, the fire of the anointing that he would feel in his hands, if it jumped from one hand to the other, then it was the presence of an evil spirit. And Jesus had told him in a vision, had spoken to him and told him that this is the way that it was going to work. And he ministered like that for several years before things changed and, and so forth. But this was during that period of time. So this guy comes up and Brother Hagin lays hands on him. And he feels that fire in his hand jump from one to the other. So he knew it was an evil spirit. And so Brother Hagin took it, uh, authority over the evil spirit. He commanded it to leave. And then Brother Hagin backed up. And he said, now see if you can touch your toes. This guy couldn't move. And so Brother Hagin stepped up to him again, touched his, put his hands on either side of his head, fire jumped back and forth like it did before. Brother Hagin did the same thing, took authority over the thing, commanded it to leave, backed up and said, now see if you can touch your toes. And the man wasn't able to do it. Brother Hagin did it the third time with the same lack of results. So Brother Hagin just said, well, just go your way rejoicing, trying to put the best face on it you could, you know. And he said that as he continued, there were other people to lay hands on. He said, I couldn't quit thinking about this guy. Lord, why didn't that work? And so he said, all of a sudden, Jesus appeared in front of him. And he said, I told you that when you felt that fire, that anointing go from hand to hand, that it was the presence of an evil spirit. And I told you that if you'd cast him out in my name, he'd go. And Brother Hagin answered. And everybody in the crowd's hearing Brother Hagin's side of this. Of course, they didn't see the vision. But they're hearing Brother Hagin respond. He said, I know, Lord. And I told him to go, but he didn't go. And Jesus disappeared. So Brother Hagin calls this guy back up. Lays hands on him. Same thing. Fire goes back and forth. Commands the evil spirit to go. Backs up and says, now see if you can touch your toes. And he doesn't. He can't. So now Brother Hagin's really perplexed. The guy's standing there and Brother Hagin backs up and he said, but Lord, I, I told it to go and it didn't go. He said, Jesus appeared to him again and he said, this time, he said, I've never seen the Lord like that. And all the visions that it had of, of Jesus and the different times Jesus appeared to him, he never saw him like this. He said it was like flashes of lightning were coming out of his eyes. 
And Jesus said in a loud voice, I said that if you cast him out in my name, he'd go. And Brother Hagin is just reporting what he's doing. He said, but Lord, I did that. And he didn't go. He said, Jesus got mad. He said he imagined that this may have been what Jesus looked like when he drove the money changers out of the temple. But he said, Jesus got mad and stomped his foot and pointed his finger in Brother Hagin's face and said, but I said he would. That'll kind of mess up your vision. <laughs> so Jesus disappeared. Brother Hagin staggers back a little bit and then sees it. So he goes back up to this guy. He's still standing there. He goes back up to this guy, slaps his hands on both sides of his head, fire jumps back and forth from one hand to the other. He said, Satan, I take authority over you in the name of Jesus. Go in Jesus' name. Then he backs up. Here's the difference. He backs up and said, now touch your toes. The man was instantly loose, went all the way down to the floor, touched his toes, and stood back up. Now here's the difference. The first few times, Brother Hagin was acting on what the word says without exercising the authority of knowing the results. The time that it worked, Brother Hagin didn't say, see if you can. He said, be free and now do it. Folks, the Bible tells us that Jesus has given us authority over all the work of the devil in his name. But we're going to have to exercise the authority. It's not a matter of just going through the motions. It's a matter of enforcing with our attitudes, enforcing with our faith what Jesus said would be. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the power that we have in the name of Jesus, the wonderful, matchless name of Jesus. We thank you, Father, that we have authority over the devil. We're not trying to have it. We're not trying to use it. We're not trying anything. Authority over the devil's work is ours. So Satan, we command you to take your hands off of our bodies in Jesus' name. We command you to take your hands off of our finances in Jesus' name. We command you to take your hands off of our families in Jesus' name. We take authority over you now and command you to go in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Is it done? Yes. Let's lift our hands and thank him for it then. We thank you, Father. Thank you that your word works. We don't have to try to make it work. We don't have to try to do something about it. We simply believe that we have authority over the work of the devil. Thank you, Father, for making it so. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Beth, you got something you want to say? Silly question. <laughs> you said you wanted to do something at the end of the service. Did I get it wrong? Well, you just preached this message and my spirit's jumping up and down, but what I have to say is like so flat after that. So what's new? <laughs>
Glory, hallelujah. I can't, I got to shout a little before I can say anything. Let, let's stand up and just shout about our authority in Christ. I cannot make my announcement <laughs> after that. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Father, we worship Glory you. to God. We magnify your name. Oh, Jesus, we thank you thank for you, our Father. authority. We thank you thank for you, the Father. power of your name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We've been given authority in the Bless name you, of Jesus. Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah for the life we have in Christ. Glory to your name. We rejoice that our names are written in heaven. We rejoice for the power that we have in your name, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Hallelujah. <laughs> Woo. That. He's going to ask me to get up after every time after he preaches, and that's what I'm going to do. Woo! He's mild-mannered Clark Kent, okay? I get, I get excited about it. Amen. Wasn't that good? I'm so thankful for the Word of God. It sets us free. You know what? I tell you, if you're willing to come to this church, you are a student of the Word of God. Thank you. It's good, isn't it? Amen. This is what, I had to say all that. This is all I'm going to say now, right? I totally forgot to say something about Sharon. We, are, we have some cake. See, this is why, how could I come up and talk about cake right after that? <laughs> yes, the power of the word of God. We're going to have cake. <laughs> but we do have some cake in the lobby. Sharon, if you want to just go out there by that table right now, just slip out there, and then that way you all have an opportunity to just thank her yourself. For her service to our church, that would be so sweet. And um, so we do have some cake out there that the girls prepared. And so just have a little time of fellowship. Anyway, we love you. And um, God is good, isn't he? Hallelujah. Let's just go out now and be lights and show his name and glory forth. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>